So Money episode 391, Amanda Clayman. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. My So Money team's recently become a fan of a company called Realty Shares that's disrupting the real estate finance industry with their crowdfunding platform. Here's some investment advice brought to you by our April sponsor, RealtyShares.com. Haley from New York writes, how do I invest in real estate in California? Well, Haley, one easy way to invest in any one of the 50 states is through a real estate crowdfunding website. There are a few, but RealtyShares.com has the lowest investment minimums. Realty Shares allows accredited investors to invest as little as $5,000 per transaction in residential and commercial real estate projects across the U.S. What's great about Realty Shares is that all of the real estate deals are sourced and vetted by experienced investment professionals. Thousands of investors are using the platform to browse through deals and invest in minutes. Of course, keep in mind that all investments are risky and may lose value. Past performance is not indicative of future results. For this month only, when you sign up at RealtyShares.com slash SoMoney and link a bank account, the company will transfer $50 into your linked bank account. Visit RealtyShares.com slash so money to begin today. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to So Money. Today's guest is a financial therapist. I love me some financial therapy. I mean, there are some brilliant people out there, including Brad Klons and my guest today, Amanda Clayman, who have made a career out of being financial therapists, people who are experts when it comes to financial wellness. Our guest today, Amanda Clayman, is a clinician specializing in financial issues and helps many people bring money into balance. She is a licensed social worker and has an additional certification in financial social work. And Amanda herself wasn't always good with money. Like, like who is, right? No one's ever born like really good with money. And at one point in her life, she found herself in $20,000 worth of credit card debt and was able to change her relationship with money. Amanda is also the founder of the financial wellness program for national arts nonprofit, The Actors Fund. And here she pioneered a cognitive behavioral approach to financial education. Amanda also runs seminars and groups for corporations. She's also authored several online courses for the learning company, lynda.com. With Amanda, we learn what is good financial hygiene and her $19,000 haircut that served as the turning point in her financial life. Here is Amanda Clayman. Amanda Clayman, welcome to So Money. Looking forward to talking about your brain on money. I didn't ever. <laughs> it's like your brain on drugs. Your brain can actually be on money. Um, welcome to the show. Thank you, Farnoosh. Actually, your your brain on money and your brain on drugs have many things in common. Oh, boy. Okay. <laughs> well, let's just dive right into it. You have a very um, unique position as um, sort of like a financial clinician. And this is, yes. I think, something that you really entrepreneurialized. You There's no like you know, you can't study this in school. There's no like, you know, path, one direction path to becoming, um, to, to having the role that you do, but it's so important. Tell us about how you got to becoming a financial cl- clinician and, and why your method is different from a lot of other financial experts approaches. 
Sure. And and just so you know, I'm I'm perfectly comfortable with the term financial therapist. That's usually okay. what I use because it's the easiest way, I think, to understand um, where I work with people in that intersection between money and mental health. Um, so your description is really perfect because there, there was no field really when I started down this path. Um, and you know, it, it started professionally 10 years ago, but personally I would say it started 12 or 13 years ago when I was starting to look at my own relationship with money and all of the places where I felt like I really was falling off track in my own financial life and that it wasn't a lack of information. I just really, I didn't know how, I couldn't operate money in the complexity of my life. And I didn't feel like there was any place that I could really go with that mess. Um, There were plenty of people who would give me advice, but nobody who could really understand what was happening, I guess, on the the personal level, on the, the behavioral level when it came to how I was thinking about and using money. Do you think you were telling yourself falsehoods about your capabilities or was there really like a mental barrier that you were challenged by? I think it was, first of all, I wasn't, I didn't even pay attention to money or I didn't pay attention to money in a productive fashion. Um, I worried about money a lot. Um, And in fact, I think my worry and my stress about money caused me to do some things that were pretty financially self-destructive. Like I would spend to soothe myself. And then when I would get really stressed about how little money I had or about how much debt I had, I would go and send every dime in my bank account um, at whatever creditor I was most worried about. Um, But there was no, there was no clear thinking in any of that. It was all just really emotional and really reactive. And that's really human at the end of the day, right? I mean, this whole field of irrational financial behavior, the root of it is that I find that a lot of times it's like, well, it's just because that's how we're hardwired. We're not born into this world thinking and behaving so rationally with our, with our, with our money. We don't, we don't look forward to saving. I mean, not at least I'm speaking very generally, right? Because mm-hmm. going back to the beginning of time, there, what we didn't live to be a hundred, you know, we lived to be like 30. And so this concept of like saving for retirement or saving for a rainy day, like that just wasn't something that we had the instincts we didn't need to do it. So now we don't really have the instincts. So how much of this, of this whole like kind of financial, emotional difficulties that we have, is it rooted in being that we're human beings or that Mm -hmm. we're just like, it's societal? What is it? It's, it's all of that, really. Um, We can understand how we experience money in our brains and bodies um, in terms of, you know, because money is hardwired right into our sense of security on one level. So anything that feels like a threat to our money, um, it's, this is why couples, when they start to fight about money, even the most loving couples can just go right off the rails into, into the, the meanest, loudest fight you've ever seen um, on the topic of money. Uh, it's because of that, that sort of survival threat response. Um, 
And then on the other hand, money also touches into all of these different levels of identity and, and the groups that we're part of and how we see ourselves. And, and so we're behaving like, quote unquote, people like us or how we think that those people would behave. Um, a lot of my own spending, for example, in that period of life was about trying to look a certain way and feeling like that was how I wanted to represent myself or how I wanted to, to be seen in the world. Um, but also, I think sometimes, too, it comes down to role models and how the larger financial systems that we need to participate in have really evolved. Like 50 years ago, we basically had most there were many families that were single earner households and there was a person who earned the money and a person who managed the money. And maybe there was a, a pension at the end of this long period of employment and people didn't have to be. They didn't have to, to evaluate all of these complex credit products. They didn't have to finance their education if they had a higher education. They didn't have to be savvy investors and manage risk over their, their uh, investment portfolio. These were just not rules that we had to do. And so we probably were never really taught how to do them. And so how do you teach people to do these things, to get over their emotional barriers there. In some cases, I find that we tell ourselves falsehoods. Like I asked you in the beginning, mm -hmm. I do think that we tell mm -hmm. ourselves for whatever reason, I'm just not good at money. But like, why do you tell yourself mm -hmm. that? You know, I mean, get over it. I mean, it's not mm -hmm. true. You actually are very capable, but you know, obviously saying this is easier than doing it. So how do mm -hmm. you get people over that emotional, um, over, over these emotional challenges? Yeah. Well, the falsehood piece is us. So yes, we do tell ourselves stories about money. That's how we interpret what's happening to us and give it meaning. Um, and it's also a way, sometimes if we're in financial difficulty of even giving, so giving meaning and even dignity to that struggle, like it's, it's hopeless just because of this reason. Um, so I use sort of a, a combination of cognitive behavioral techniques um, in, in that's what I, I ground my financial therapy or the financial education that I do. It's, it's um, very CBT based, <clears throat> excuse me, um, but also using mindfulness. So certain things like when people have a, a story that they're telling themselves about money, um, I'll say, okay, well, what's the evidence of that? Like, show me that, show me where that's happening and asking people to provide some level of insight or detail about it. And do you, and do you find when you ask for people to show you the evidence that often they can't? <laughs> yeah, we need to be able to look at, we need to be able to pay attention to money without getting overwhelmed or dissociating um, or, or sort of zoning out in the way that many of us often do because money is such a stressful trigger. Can you give me an example of this? Like, well, can you walk sure. me through a case study? Okay. So I, I do a lot of work with people who are creative professionals. Um, and so a typical client for me probably has multiple jobs that they're doing. Um, they have an idea that if they just hustle enough that the money will take care of itself or, um, or they're really optimistic about the future and feel like, you know what, I can't worry about this because if I, if I just stay positive, um, I know that this will all work itself out. So 
helping them slow down, first of all, understand why, what stress is and how it brought them in the door. Um, that stress has served its purpose. Good job, stress. You know, let's make friends with our stress and appreciate the role that it plays here. Um, that stress has brought you in the door. But now what we need to do is be able to table that, if you will, um, and slow down the process of trying to fix whatever the financial issue is, um, such that we can go through through a certain uh, series of, of um, tasks. And the first task is just being able to gather information. And so we say, we're not going to change anything. We're not even going to think about what we need to do. We're just going to be able to gather information. Um, and helping people be able to do that piece first uh, is critical for them being able to understand clearly whatever financial challenge is happening in their life. And, you know, money can take us on a journey. So we can use these skills, whether our problem is that we've been overspending or we're not earning enough or we're fighting with our, our partner, etc. So we sort of table the idea of change and just try to get the facts. Um, and then the next step is is to analyze what we see. Now we've gathered this information. Now we can be a little bit more informed, a little bit clearer, and not necessarily just project whatever our belief is or whatever that money story is um, that we assume is happening. This is where we can look for the evidence. Now we have some evidence to look at. Um, so we look at that and, and we generate options. So the way that I'm framing my problem, what are all of the different things that I might be able to adjust here? And the idea of adjustment is really important because if we don't, if we feel like we're just losing something, um, if we feel like managing cash flow or making a budget is just a means of taking something away from us, um, then we're going to be naturally resistant to it. So this is more about just trying to look at all of the different ways that you can you can direct money at the things that are important to you, or organize your efforts to try to bring money into balance. The next step after generating all of these different ideas and options is to now pick pick something. What is it? What's our hypothesis? What do we think is the thing that could possibly make this situation better? Um, and then we walk ourselves through what would need to change in order to do that. So there's a lot of looking at the situation, um, understanding and accepting what is, then we try to be expansive in our, our thoughts about what we could do about that. Then we try to be really, um, really delve into the preparation phase. Um, you know, for example, if you think you spend too much money on food or taxis or, or whatever your sort of whatever area it is you're looking at, um, we frame that in a neutral way. Like that's you using money to take care of a certain need. So if you want to change that to make room for other needs or goals, um, what are you doing still to feed yourself or getting yourself <laughs> from point A to point B? Um, and that's a place where a lot of cash flow management or a lot of budgeting efforts really fall off as we expect ourselves to just be able to change that magically out of thin air. Why focus on the artist community? What is it about that community where you found there was a great need for your for your services? That has been my incubator thus far. Um, I was really fortunate to be given the job. So I, I went into this feeling 
Like, this is my mission. I want to change the way that people think about and use money. I want to expand um, our understanding of money to include more of these these psychological and emotional elements. Um, and I got, but there was no there was no field for that um, when I was first starting out. And so I was really lucky that I was given a job with an organization called the Actors Fund, where I had the opportunity to to create a program from nowhere. And and artists and people who are creative freelancers have really been the best people uh, to work with to develop my understanding of what it means to be a freelancer, uh, to develop my understanding of what it means to take work um, or make spending choices when you don't know what the future will hold or because something is really centrally important to you in a way that can't show up in the numbers in your life if you were just looking at the numbers. Yeah, I can only imagine. I mean, not just for actors, but a lot of people who don't have that consistent paycheck, there's that, that inherent anxiety, right, around your money and your finances because you just, the biggest question I get from freelancers and people who don't have that steady paycheck is, how do I actually plan for things? Mm-hmm. You know, because I don't know what is going to happen in a month or I don't know, even if I complete a job, are they going to pay me right away? That's a big, that's a big right. hurdle. And so there are practical ways to approach that question. Um, And you can talk about why it's important to have a cushion and why it's important to understand um, what your your monthly nut or your burn rate is. Um, Those are all vital pieces of this puzzle. Um, Ultimately, though, what people have to learn how to do is to stand in their own power, so to speak, and to understand that we are all we all need to be responsible for the financial uh, choices that we make in our lives. And sometimes we can use information to support that. But at the end of the day, nobody can tell you what the future will hold. And entrepreneurs, I think, need to have that, that reality validated for them as a way of empowering them to say, okay, then, you know, what do you want your system to look like? I'm going to help you with that. But, but there's no one size fits all model here. Right. Amanda, what's your financial philosophy? Do you have a money mantra? Yes. Uh, My money mantra is that all financial behavior has meaning and that we need to respect that. And then what would you say growing up was a pivotal money memory? Um, For me, the first time that I really was aware of money um, was I was a little bit older. I was a, a teenager. And my parents were both very stressed about money. Um, And they would talk about that stress in a way that I really thought that we were in danger financially. Um, And I remember once my mother saying something about savings, and just being absolutely flabbergasted that there were savings, it had never occurred to me um, that we might have savings. And it was at that moment that I became really aware of how much anxiety I had been absorbing about money without really having the full context because, you know, I'm a kid and that was the reality of that was, was in the grown up world. So then in the grown up world, did that manifest itself to a financial failure of sorts? Yeah, I think that that, that general anxiety about money probably was one of the things that made it hard for me to pay attention to it. Um, and so I mentioned 
going into debt and having this, this period of my life that was really chaotic financially. Um, and, and it all sort of manifested, uh, or hit bottom, if you will. Um, one day when I was sort of in my like mid late twenties and my mother came to visit me and, and she, I asked her to cut my hair. And I know this sounds ridiculous to be a grown up and have your mother cutting your hair. Um, and she did, in fact, give me the worst haircut ever. Um, and I burst into tears. And she she said, oh, don't worry about it. We'll, we'll tell your hairstylist it's an emergency. I'm sure she'll see you right away. And that was where the truth all came tumbling out. And I had to say, like, no, I bounced a check. Um, this was back in the 90s when you could write checks to your hairdresser. Um, I bounced a check. I'm laid on all these bills. Um, I have all of this debt. And this was the first time where I really told the truth to somebody, um, about how bad my financial life had gotten. So I, I call that experience my $19,000 haircut. Um, (sighs) because that was the turning point for me where I started telling the truth, where I started asking for help and where the rebuilding process. And ultimately, you know, that was the beginning of, of this journey for me. I failed so hard, Farnoosh, that I needed to have a whole new career oh helping others. <laughs> so what did your mom say at that time? She was she was shocked, absolutely shocked. Um, but to her credit, she was not at all there was no recrimination. There was no shame. Like she absolutely showed up and, um, and helped me right then and there, uh, determine what I owed and, uh, to come up with a budget and come up with a plan. And, and in fact, it was, it was really not a complex document, this budget. It was like seven line items on a piece of paper. Um, but it was more that somebody was, was, able to be with me in a place that I struggled. And um, it's something that I talk to a lot of parents of grown children about that there's a period or there may be need for a period of reparenting Mm -hmm. of your adult children, specifically around money to learn how to really operate money, because we, we can talk to them about it. And there are great lessons that we can give them when they're little, but that's different than how we operate money when we are independent adults. Exactly. It's, well, it's, well, first of all, we don't get the education generally growing up. And then once you turn 18, go to college, it's like, now you're the adult, but mm-hmm. yet it, this is the, the prime time to learn about money. Otherwise you will learn it the hard way. And um, I did a whole show on this that lasted one season. Maybe mm-hmm. some of you watched it. It was called Bank of Mom and Dad. I would love for something like that to come back and resurface. Maybe you could host it. It's basically mm-hmm. these young 20 somethings who've done reckless things with their money coming face to face with it and also cluing in their parents who have no idea because why would they? And mm-hmm. the, the, the two parties, mom and dad and the kid really having, like you said, like a reeducation, a relearning period mm-hmm. where, um, it's a, it's a learning process for parents and kids. And to say, you know, here, at least at the very least, what the parents can do, I think, is to share their own journey. I mean, you may not be the most perfect role model financially, but that doesn't mean that you don't have experiences and lessons learned that would be valuable to pass down to your kids. Um, so I love it. Um, I love it. And I think sharing those mistakes and, and places where you've learned as a parent, um, 
are really helpful for young adults to hear because they might assume that you're perfect and all the things right. that you've figured out that you just have all the answers and you always had them. Um, so owning up to really where where you made mistakes and, and what you learned to do differently because of that can be one of the, the greatest gifts that you can give to your children. What about success, Amanda? What would you say uh, was a period of financial success for you? What happened? Um, well, I'm, I'm really working on that right now. So I feel like I have learned to be such a more conscious budgeter and spender in my own life. But one place where I see as an area of growth for myself in the next chapter is being more conscious and directed about how I earn money. Um, because I think all of us naturally sort of, uh, try to balance one side of the equation over the other. You know, there are people who naturally see a problem and try to spend less. I'm definitely one of those people. Um, and there are people who see a problem and they try to earn more. Um, so I have been working as I move into a more entrepreneurial phase of my own career on how I pitch my, my services um, and how I price that. And I'm trying to be really conscious about that. And I've had a few, I've had a few wins. I've had a few successes so far. And that's really exciting for me. Rock on. Okay. Let's Thank talk, you. let's talk about rituals or okay. habits. I know you like to call them. I've heard rituals. I love that mm -hmm. financial rituals or habits that you practice. Maybe just one mm -hmm. that you think is really important in getting you to your financial goals. Um. Well, I have one that's in, so I, I think I'm pretty vanilla in that sense, in terms of like, I have a time that I sit down and I look at my money, but there was one that I wanted to share with you. Um, that is a ritual that actually has brought a lot of, um, pleasure to my life, um, in an unexpected way, which is I, when I get change, um, when I get $1 bills and change, I take them and I fold them and I keep them at the top of my, my bag, uh, my handbag. And that way, whenever I see someone on the street who's homeless or who is panhandling, um, I don't think about whether or not that person needs the money or seems worthy. I just decided that for me in my life, I don't want to be the kind of person who's, who's even having that thought process. I want to be the kind of person who steps up and gives to another human being. Um, so that's my way of just making that really easy mm. and, and actionable. Um, and it, I feel like connects me with other people who are in need and just gives me a moment to give them a dollar and say, you know, I hope your luck changes or God bless. Mm. That's wonderful. That's a really good idea, especially I live in New York too. So <laughs> that, uh, that would be something handy for sure, mm -hmm. sadly, but, um, I like that a lot. All right, let's do some, so money fill in the blanks. This is when I start a sentence and you finish it. First thing that comes to mind, you know, this okay. part well, right? Cause you listen yeah. to the show. <laughs> yeah. Okay. If I won the lottery tomorrow, the first thing I would do is I would take a giant pause <laughs> and not decide what to do with it um, until after a period of time. I would give myself at least six months to figure out what I want to do okay. with that money. That's a great idea. And don't tell anyone mm -hmm. either that you won the lottery. That probably would help. <laughs> right. I would still rush you to make a decision. No, I would them. incorporate. Yep. I would have all the proper tax procedures put in place. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that's smart. Okay. One thing I spend on that makes my life easier or better is? 
Um, this is what I'm working on too, is an assistant. Um, I feel like I have not always had the, the support in my life to do my best work. Um, and so starting to spend on an assistant and free myself up is something that I'm really proud of. Right on. Yeah, I have an assistant too, Sophia. She's actually been on mm-hmm. a couple of my podcasts, Ask Farnoosh, assisting, uh, asking yes. questions, and she's been a game changer for my business. So uh, I completely vouch for that. All right. What's one splurge, a splurge that I spend money on that I wouldn't, uh, reg- that I don't regret and I wouldn't have it any other way is? Uh, prepared food. I wish I I had the time to cook more. I also wish I liked cooking more, but no, food is a little bit of a means to an end. So uh, I am grateful for all of the good prepared food in my life. Mm -hmm. And there's so many resources, especially if you live in a city, there's not just Seamless, but there's like Uber Eats now and all these other companies that will bring you, even if you like cooking, but don't have time to plan, they'll bring you the, I think it's called... um, a blue, blue apron. apron, right? Well, they're just, they'll send you a box of fresh ingredients. So I think that's a definite need in the market. When I donate, I like to give to blank because I like to give to causes with a personal connection. Um, so either, you know, a, if there's a charity that's raising money for research for a disease, for example, um, you know, maybe a person in my life has struggle with that disease. Um, or that's also actually why I like to do the, the $1 bills. Um, it's just because when I, I just want to use money and giving money in a way that, that fosters my sense of connection. Mm. And last but not least, I'm Amanda Clayman. I'm so money because I love the journey that money is taking me on. Right on. And you're bringing a lot of people with you, which is fantastic and important. And I love you for it. Thank you so much, Amanda. Thank you, Farnoosh. That's a wrap. If you'd like to learn more about Amanda, her website is amandaclayman.com. She's also on Twitter at Amanda Clay. All this and more back at somoneypodcast.com. And while you're at somoneypodcast.com, click on Ask Farnoosh and send me your questions for the Friday episodes of Ask Farnoosh. Don't forget. And two days until my CNBC show premieres, Follow the Leader kicks off on Wednesday, 10 p.m. Eastern Pacific on CNBC, our first entrepreneur that we're profiling and going behind the scenes with for like 72 hours is my friend, John Paul DeJoria. He is the co-founder of Paul Mitchell Systems and also the founder of Patron Tequila. I'll be raising a margarita to that episode. In the meantime, hope your day is so money. Money.